64, a chess podcast, is now sponsored by Chessable. To learn more about Chessable and about my favorite courses there, go to chessable.com slash 64pod. Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I am your host, as always, David, coming at you live from Copenhagen, Denmark. Joining me today for the second time, needs no introduction, Woman Grandmaster Jennifer Shadi. Welcome back to the show. How's it going? Thank you. I'm so great. It's wonderful to see you again. Yeah, you too. Um, But we do have to get this out of the way. You've been on a lot of podcasts lately, so I, I think you know the fans need to hear this. What's your favorite chess podcast and why is it mine? Oh, wow. <laughs> your, your chess podcast is just so amazing. Um, the reason it's the best is because you've had me two times in what? It's been one year. So. Yeah. It's actually, you obviously have good taste. Exactly. You know, you that's ex- right. And it should also be said, you know, the, my, my friends over at the Chess Pit podcast, you know, they, they did the whole live studio thing. Okay, guys, we get it. Okay. So they have a bigger budget. Not cool. Um, I have more followers than you on Twitter now, so it is what it is. And by the way, oh, you, ooh, you, yeah. know, you know where it hurts more followers on Twitter. Yeah. Well, actually I haven't verified that. I assume that at this point that it's a, it's a higher cause I've been, uh, I've been looking for any way to, you know, I'm, I'm very competitive. That's the chess mindset. Um, in all seriousness, that's the first thing that I should say is uh, that was one of my favorite podcast episodes I've ever listened to. Um, the, those guys with you. So, um, I like, Chess Pit Podcast with Jen Shotty. You guys should, that's required listening either before or after this one. And it's more Jen for all of us. So, you know, doesn't hurt. Yeah, that, they, were, they were great to just see in person and hang out. I mean, it kind of brings you back to why you start podcasts. It's like not only to get your ideas out there in the world, like writing a book, but it's also a chance to have deeper conversations with people in your network. And as somebody who's, you know, uh, especially during the pandemic, kind of like deep into a little bit of workaholicism, I find that like break of like a one hour deep conversation where we, you know, can just like really dive in uh, to be so valuable. Yeah. And of course, I mean, the the main reason why I wanted you to come with this podcast was to promote your book, Chess Queens. And we will talk a lot about that. But I think it's, I was wondering, you know, you've done like a, like a flurry of press stuff for this. I mean, I, you know, and, and how has that been? Has that been a little exhausting at all? Or is it, or like, cause I, I've, uh, I've, I'm really like amazed that, you know, you are, you're really, uh, I saw Hikaru with the book and like, that's that. And by the way, another thing to mention before we get this out of the way, Hikaru, you know, he, he shares this book and then he wins the, you know, he makes it to the candidates. I, you know, I reread the book a couple of weeks ago and I hit my all time rating high on chess.com so you know there's a coincidence there i maybe uh you know a little little bit of a scientist you know correlation causation blah 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 but you know or we can say what it really is which is that you buy the book and it's an elo boost so pure science pure science i i've done a research study i've got my database out there yeah. you'll definitely win the candidates or peak your chess.com rating and actually it's funny about hikaru because he posted it on his way to berlin and as you know he almost lost 
not only his first game, but his second game too. So yeah. I was like, so I was like, oh no. It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it went from also not just for the selfish reason that it makes my book look like a like a like a rating deflator, but also because I, I like Hikaru and the fact that he made the candidates is gonna make it so much more exciting. Very interesting so. for sure, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I guess we should just. So I I read this. You sent me this book um, about two months ago. Uh, I read it once, then I read it again on a flight uh, from Portugal home, and then I was rereading it a third time uh, last weekend. So I've really been uh, been. First of all, I want to say that um, I'm very impressed. I've talked about this on the podcast a lot. Um, I I have a, a bunch of chess books, and I've always been looking for books that are like about chess, not chess books, if that makes sense. And I think that this is something that I really enjoyed about this book, like in general, is that, um, you know, you don't have game diagrams and stuff like that, although you do have the games at the end. But this is really a book about, you know, the chess culture. Exactly. I, I love books like this, you know, and so I always wanted to write one. And the idea was also for it to go beyond chess so that chess players can maybe buy it for people that were chess curious. And, you know, maybe knew the rules, but weren't so sure about like diving in and uh, adding the diagrams, even though I think like diagrams and words are incredibly beautiful. And like the combination of them is, is so lovely and, and creates great works of literature. It, it, it can make people feel a little intimidated. So that was a conscious decision to like put them at the end of the book. Yeah. And I think it definitely... Um... I definitely think anybody, whether you have any experience in chess at all, zero, I think it is definitely very accessible. The first thing I wanted to ask you, um, you talk a lot about like what it means to play like a girl and uh, the kind of the, the duality that if you, if you play too aggressive or irresponsibly, you're playing like a girl. If you play too passively, oh, you're also playing like a girl and kind of how you can't really win. Um, I thought this might be an interesting question, but, but what do you think it means to play like a girl? Well, I definitely think that playing like a girl means to be a badass, to crush your opponent. I think there's a slight, uh, a slight tendency in all seriousness for girls and women to play slightly more aggressively. Um, you definitely see fewer draw offers. And I give a lot of reasons for this in the book. The one in my case, the reason I developed such an aggressive style was certainly in part because of Judith Polgar, who I admired so much and I wanted to play like her. Uh, and also it was because I wanted to, to subvert that stereotype. I wanted people to see like, wow, you know, she's just like out there tossing punches. And thirdly, thirdly, I, I also think that it, it really does suit my kind of like style as like an athlete, mental athlete to be more aggressive. I think it's just a good fit for me because I, uh, I'm very good at intense focus, but stamina is not my strong suit. So if I can, you know, knock somebody out in 30 moves, it's going to work. It's going to be better. <laughs> like the hundred move grind is, is, is going to be a little tougher for me. The reason why I really asked about this was one, something that I really noticed throughout the, throughout the book. Uh, you obviously interviewed a lot of female players and something that struck me because I, I mean, I would certainly consider this book like a, like a feminist work. Um, but many of the responses that you got from your peers um, would not be considered necessarily, you know, in the, let's say, in the canon of feminist opinions. Um, 
at all. Uh, there's, you know, I don't know if it's maybe internalized misogyny or if it's just a different, you know, cultural background or what it is. But this is, and especially the way you present these is with zero judgment, almost zero tone. It's just kind of like, this is their opinion. This is the way it is, which I, I, I did admire actually. But I was wondering if you could kind of give your thoughts on that in general. Yeah, that was surprising that a lot of the greatest female players in history um, wouldn't necessarily identify as feminists or their viewpoints um, would not be labeled as feminist. But then if you think about it, it's not that surprising because as a feminist in the chess world, you are going to be um, aggravated constantly by so many microaggressions and you know macroaggressions and uh, pseudoscience. And so it kind of makes sense that, you know, some women who play are like blocking all that out and focusing on chess. Um, one of the players in the book had a, a good quote about it, Harriet Hunt, who actually just saw in London. Um, she said, this was years ago, but she had said that uh, the reason a lot of women in chess aren't feminist is because it would be too distracting. Like they just need to play the game. And especially distracting, considering the fact that there's all these examples of sexism and misogyny in the chess culture. So that could be particularly upsetting. So yeah, I, I think it's just, just the, um, the fact you're going to see that a lot that, you know, if you're, I think in probably other fields, you'll see something similar, um, but particularly in chess, it makes sense if you think about it. When it came to like, you know, compiling, uh, as the first thing I want to ask you is how long have you actually been working on this book for? Because I do get the sense that this is, you know, it's a labor of, of love, I guess, that there's, it feels like it's been worked on for a long time, but I was actually just curious. Well, there was a precedent to it, Chess Bitch, which took me years. And then the revision took me like another almost year. So I would say a few years probably in total, but it, in reality, it's really more than that. Because so many of the things I pulled from it are from my own, you know, experiences, playing the game, um, studying the game as a child. And I think that's why it's such, um, it's such a, a book that is, is, is coming back. You know, I, I guess it would be pompous to say timeless, but <laughs> it's a book that stands the test of time, partly because there, there is so much that went into it. You know, I was lucky because I had this passion for writing and feminism, but I was also strong enough that I wasn't one of the best women players in the world, but I was strong enough to always play with the best in the world, right? The exempted checks in of women who didn't play in women's tournaments like Yulia Polgar. Um, I got a chance to play or play against their team with Irina Crush on board one. So that gave me such tremendous access that would be really hard to get otherwise. Right. I mean, you shared stories about like playing for the Olympiad team and playing in like the Women's World Championship, right? And um, yeah, I, I thought that was a, you, you, so you do definitely have a very unique uh, perspective. Um, and when it, when it comes to like, uh, like the tone of the book, something I want to also was wondering, like, why did, was there like a philosophical approach on how you wanted to kind of present things? Because it, it does, I, it, it's interesting to me how you don't quite come off as necessarily opinionated. It comes off more as like matter of fact, the way, the way you present things. And I don't know if that was just a conscious, conscious choice or if that was more of like your writing style. Yeah, it's probably my writing style. I think that I have tremendous admiration for the women in the book. And obviously some of them I disagree with. And 
certainly there's a lot of men quoted in the book that I disagree with, like Nigel Short or Gary Kasparov before he had his feminist awakening. Um, but I do think it's powerful as, as a writer to describe things and let the reader decide. Yeah, that's actually, well, one of the things I think maybe one of the most mortifying things I'd ever read was when you described uh, chess base in the days of yore. Now I had no idea that that's what chess base was like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, for, you know, for those of you who don't have the book, um, which again, I recommend, uh, you purchase, um, chess base, as I understand from what I read about 20 years ago would like rate the attractiveness of female chess players like in official articles um which is obviously like completely unprofessional and even like it's not even that it's like some of the descriptions like i think i remember they described one girl as like you know eternally young or whatever some some i don't know it's some very creepy stuff and this is chess base i mean this is like you know now they, I mean, now they have, I mean, Tatiana Flores, who I just had on my podcast a week ago. I mean, you know, I actually mentioned this to her and I was like, well, chess base has really come a long way in 20 years because this is like mortifying. But again, I don't think you present that, this these anecdotes with necessarily like, uh, this is bad. I think it's just, it's it's pretty obvious, like from that. Yeah. I mean, one of the stories there was there was a, a chess master from Siberia. And they said that her like vital statistics were her measurements. And they actually did not even give her chess rating, like her peak rating or her chess rating. And I was like, well, that, that right there is saying that like a woman's body is more important than her mind. Uh, that, that said, I also think um, they probably, like I knew the founder at the time and I actually think he was a big supporter of women's chess. Like he basically, like a lot of people just thought that this was like a, this was like a match with feminism that you were like, this is the way it is that women are judged on their looks and, you know, pushing that forward, like is giving more exposure to women. Yeah. It's also, I mean, the, unfortunately there is kind of this precedent in, in other sports, at least in America, like with, with football and, and hockey, I know that there's always been these pushes to kind of, you know, for, for like, uh, the female leagues to make it like, you know, skimpy shirt, skimpy skirts or stuff like that. So I guess kind of sexualize these athletic activities again for attention. Um, and I mean, I guess that's how it works. I'm now I, I, why I guess it's like this segues very nicely into one of the thoughts that I had as I was reading it, where you, you share a lot of stories about your, I guess your colleagues who were attending college um, while like work pursuing their chess careers or, other people that like your friends in the chess world who actually quit chess for a few years to focus on school. Um, and I wondered, you know, I was thinking about, let's say Hans Niemann, who's, uh, you know, he's 26, 50 or so. He took a year off from college basically to play these tournaments circuit. And um, women can't really do that in the chess world unless they're unbelievably talented or have a ton of financial support at home because the tournament like prize money isn't, enough like compared to male tournaments aside from i know i think the u.s championship for for like the the women's section i think compared to the men's section i don't know exactly what the prize breakdown is but it isn't something like you know 10 to 1 uh, in terms of money as far as i know it's something um, like three to two yeah i think it's like yeah. around a hundred thousand dollars for women and 150 or 160 for men so something like three to two yeah yeah i mean it should be 50 50 but uh yeah well you know that's an interesting question that i really um, grappled with over the years. And I think my awakening is being more understanding of workers' rights and labor and entertainment. 
And the idea that like, especially now it's just being so popular, like playing chess on stream is not just about like, oh, you know, a, a philanthropist supports it. It's also um, a symbol of intelligence and it's entertainment and having women involved is amazing. So uh, yeah, I think equal pay completely makes sense. Of course, the counter argument is that women can play in the open sections. And so like, if you put just as much money in the women's section as the open, you're creating um, a disincentive for them to ever bother to play in the open section. Uh, so yeah, I, I actually I actually understood that second argument for a while. Um, I think it's becoming less relevant though, because the other thing is like the prize money doesn't really reflect all the opportunities. Like if a woman was to become strong enough to play in the you know elite tournaments, you know, top 10 in the world, like Yuta Polgar um, 20 years ago, she would get so many great sponsorship deals. I think like she would play in the open section, even if she could win easily the women's section. Right. I think there would be so many other incentives that are kind of like um, uh, in additional, external to just the prize funds. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I really buy that argument so much anymore. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it's a, it's a great idea to increase the prize funds for women's events. Yeah, but also because what I thought about is, you, for example, you give examples like Rochelle Ballantyne or I, I know like, um, let's say hypothetically like Alexandra Botez. I don't know how strong Alexandra Botez was. Like I know obviously like WFM and something like 2100 FIDE, but um, they ended up going to college for, you know, for being really strong players. And as great as it is to go to college, um, I, I, I suspect that, you know, they go to college and they don't really have the opportunity to, let's say, take a year to pursue their chess career and see what happens. So what I imagine is a lot of female players, a lot of strong female talents, um, just simply because like the, the female circuit is not as profitable as I guess the open slash male circuit of chess, uh, you know, they, once they go to college or, or, you know, get that one opportunity that that's it. And that that's a whole funnel of, of talent and potential, you know, people who can push each other to that 2700 to that you know top 10 top five top one spot even hopefully um that we don't get to see i because I, I to me it seems like there's like a lot of talent that and as you talk about in your book a lot of people who have to like kind of give up on their professional dreams just because it's i mean obviously i'm not saying we all know professional chess doesn't have that much money in the first place um but even still it is something i guess i lamented and something i i uh i did think about well, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I really lament it because if you look at Botez and Valentine, both of them went to Stanford, by the way. Um, Valentine definitely um, helped by her chess career. Not 100% sure about Alexander Botez. It's funny because she told our girls club about the moment she got ex accepted into Stanford and how it was like such a memorable moment because it was her dream school and she'd been rejected from another school. And like she was just euphoric, but I'm sure chess played some kind of role. Uh, I don't remember her mentioning that. But anyway, the point is both of them, in some way chess helped them get into Stanford. They got in and they're both like crushing it in life. And particularly uh, for the chess world, you know, Botez has created this like entire social media brand right. and new way of succeeding in chess. and. Rochelle is um, an incredible student and like is going to be a lawyer and a, a great advocate for people of color, for women, um, and who knows what she's going to end up being, but I think it's going to be really boss. <laughs> Not only that, uh, Rochelle is starting to play more chess herself, 
So yeah, I don't know. I think with those two examples, like I'm very happy that they went to Stanford. Yeah, maybe not the best examples. Know? Um, and I, I actually, I was, uh, I applied to Stanford back in the day. I didn't get rejected. I was, I was uh, deferred, and then I had already done early action somewhere else. But damn you, Stanford! I Boo. got rejected from a lot of places too. So it is okay. what it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, now they, now they sometimes invite me to speak. So it's yeah. all good. It's yeah. all good. But um, yeah, the. Uh, I know what you mean, though. There are women where you're wondering if maybe they would have taken that path if there was a little bit of right. extra change, um, and that makes that makes you a little sad. Like, you think about somebody like maybe Irina Crash. Maybe she would have done less coaching and like focused more on becoming really uh, elite if um, she had more support. But I don't know. I feel like Irina's kind of happy with that balance at this point. Uh, but yeah, you're you're right. There are definitely examples um, of which you can say it would be great um, if there was more support. But you, you have this philosophy in general on chess that I actually really admire. Um, you know, when, you t when we did talk about this last year, about like what does it mean to be successful in chess? Um, and I know you've talked about this on other podcasts, but as I, you know, as, as I remember you explaining it, you know, it's not just about your ELO, right? It's, it's kind of like what you do through chess. So I guess Rochelle and, and Alex Botez are great examples of people who have been highly successful. Uh, through chess, even okay, so they're not you know twenty eight hundred uh, destroying Magnus Carlson or something, but obviously you know they've made fantastic careers for themselves. Rochelle is an advocate for the game, and um, and and I don't even have to say. I mean, Alexandra Botez and her and her sister. I mean, they're the two of the biggest uh, chess personalities ever. So exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think that I think that it worked, certainly worked out well in their cases. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it is beautiful to see, to see this like different type of metric of chess success that people can now dream of, you know, being a great player, but they can also dream of making a life out of chess in, in different ways. And I think that that opens the game to more types of people, to more personalities, to more types of talents. Was there, when you were writing the book, was there like something like a fact that kind of just surprised you or some, something that just kind of shocked you as you were working on the, I mean, I know it's a very personal book, but also that maybe from the historical side as well. Yeah. I mean, I was really shocked as I started finding out more about Sonia Graf. Like I couldn't imagine that like Sonia Graf or also like Ludmila Rodenko, that these women who were so fascinating and so heroic, um, Sonia Graf being um, this bon vivant who spoke out against the Nazis and used chess to travel the world and, you know, talked about how it was like a kaleidoscope of travel and a, uh, a way to see the beautiful, great world. Uh, just like such a modern point of view. I, I was just so shocked that she wasn't more known. And same thing with Rudenko, although she was the Google Doodle like six years ago. And so they, they did a good job of correcting that. Rudenko, second women's world champion, saved a train full of children in the siege of Leningrad. So certainly a hero. But yeah, like how are these names not household names? I was like shocked. Uh, and I guess it just goes to show that the things that we remember are sometimes very skewed. And they're not always the most interesting stories. They're not always the most inspiring stories. And that's why the work of historians and writers is so important, podcasters, because we can dig in and find those things that are more interesting. I mean, to give you an example, like, which is very nerdy and chess oriented, when I was like coming up studying chess, you know, usually I was using chess books for tactics. And 
I got to tell you, like they just use the same tactics over and over again. There was one like, it's a great tactic. So this might not be the greatest example, but it just pops into mind immediately. There was like a queen B2 move that Capablanca played once, but it was literally in every book. You know, even if the book only had like a hundred tactics, like that was in it. Whereas now, you know, you see like a great proliferation of different tactics that are, you know, so beautiful. And I, I find that interesting. There's just so many stories. You don't have to keep repeating the same ones. I think Sorry, one- Capablanca. I, I hate that example because I think that one's good because of history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to think of a better one. <laughs> Another, th- well, one of the, one of the stories, I mean, I knew about Vera Menchik from, tw- but I did not know how she passed away. And uh, that I think really hit hard when I was flying home from Portugal and I was rereading the book. And um, actually the people sitting next to me on the plane there, we had a layover in Germany and, and they, she was actually Ukrainian, her and her husband was German. And they were like on WhatsApp, they paid for the, they paid for like the, uh, the Wi-Fi because they're trying to get in contact with their family. Um, actually, I, my, uh, my grand, my grandfather and like my uncles, they're like Ukrainian. My mom was born in Ukraine. So all of this stuff was hitting me at home. And I remember reading this, like, um, yeah. about Vermenchik and kind of how her life ended, which was, you know, tragic. Um, and I, I think it, it kind of hit especially close to home. And I didn't know any of that either. Cause these are just kind of, you know, typically, unfortunately, Vermenchik is kind of mentioned, oh, like she was a woman who played in these big tournaments and that's it. And you don't know anything else about uh, about her. And I, I, I did um, that chapter with with her and, and Sonia Graf. Kind of like the the two, like it was kind of like a t- like almost like a like a tale of two cities, I guess. Like you know, kind of two very different you know contemporaries who kind of had two different, very different endings to the, you know their their life stories. So I think that was, uh, and I, I really admired that. I think. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, that they both um, were so ahead of their time, but in different ways. Vera Menchik was ahead of her time in that she was playing with the men and she was so strong and she was brave to, um, you know, just pursue that passion. Um, But Sonia, of course, it was very ahead of her time and her her lifestyle, her bon vivant lifestyle and her her approach to living. Um, So I uh, I am. I I agree with you. And I, and it's true, you know, that whole chapter really, you know, makes you, you think about how just it wasn't that long ago that people's lives were just like so drastically changed by World War II, um, you know, and, uh, and their chess careers obviously were a footnote. And looking now at so many of the chess players who are um, affected by the war in Ukraine, it's uh it's a very difficult time for them you know escaping ukraine i had one of them on my podcast anastasia rachmangalova and like the the people that you saw on the plane she's also been on like telegram and instagram like 24 7 because now that she's escaped she wants to help you know try to connect with people to most efficiently get supplies there right or find out what what her friends are doing and what they might need what kind of information connections they might need so like, yeah, she just, she's just on her phone all the time trying to make that happen. Oh, anyway, I, I also saw your, uh, your, your thread about your ancestry in Ukraine and why like beyond just the human rights atrocities and the sadness, it like really is particularly um, emph- emphatic for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, and actually I, when I was in Portugal w- with my family, it was, it was my mom's cousins. 
one it was like her, she came to america and then uh her her two cousins they were they're both born and lived in ukraine so they came maybe like a year or two later they're a bit younger than her and i mean i guess they're like my my you know uncle once removed or something but they're my uncles you know whatever the same blood and um yeah, I was with them in uh, in Portugal, and I remember my my aunt asked me, um, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think Putin is going to invade Ukraine? And this was like on the twenty third, and I was like, I don't know, who knows? And then I wake up the next morning. We were at a football game, and I wake up the next morning. I just and I see the news, like like that they, they actually invaded. I woke up my cousin, and the whole tone of the the trip changed because it, for them it was so much more personal, even than me. I I never like identified as Ukrainian, but now like uh it's 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 really different like you know when i I mentioned this in the thread but like my grandfather would always explain and tell me about like lvov and kiev and ternopil all these places in ukraine and now i only associate them my first time really seeing pictures of them is with this so it 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 hits kind of hard i guess and you were you were just in london so i'm sure you saw the ukrainian flags and stuff like and i don't know what it's like in london compared to here but i know in copenhagen I've heard people on the phone with like the refugee agencies and stuff, like trying to like organize just in like random cafes and stuff. So it's, it's really crazy. Yeah. It's so sad, it's sad. And you know, actually the woman we were talking about earlier, Ludmila Rudenko, she was born in Ukraine as well. Um, Lubny, I don't know if that's a city you you've heard of. I don't think it's particularly large. It's a pretty small city in central Ukraine. Um, she was born there, but she ended up living, um, in, in Moscow and, uh, what's now St. Petersburg. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the great players in chess have, were born in Ukraine. Odessa, uh, uh, Irina Krush was born in Odessa. Mm-hmm. Um, the Muzichuk sisters, Natalia Zhukova. There's just like so many amazing female players who were born in Ukraine. Yeah, and it's, 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 it, it gives some context, I guess. I think we, we've, we've exchanged some tweets about this um, Alekhine. We talked about him on the podcast before, but you know, you you think about like let's say the Karyakin stuff, and he's kind of like a modern day Alakine in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except like I feel like I mean, I, I mean, yeah, Karyakin I don't want to. Is... Well, no, no, no. It's it's fine. I mean, our Kar- Karyakin um, has been you know waving the Putin flag for so many years, hasn't he? I mean, he's he's been a a big fan of him for a long time, hasn't he? Yeah, but I, I that that is true, and I maybe that says something about um you know the the chess world and 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 Russian politics how intertwined they are, um because that was kind of something that has just been I guess glossed over or overlooked, and I mean I I'm not a politician or anything like I I'm not gonna act like I have the best understanding of what's going on in Ukraine or, or Russia, but there there is something I guess a little like when it comes to World War II, let's say like the, that period of chess like. That's like four or five years of chess history that like just nobody really talks about. There weren't really many tournaments, obviously for a ton of reasons, but also it's just kind of like there's like a silence almost over like who was who was you know supporting whom, and it's just like oh that that is a thing that happened, and now it's like we're actually living through. Okay, obviously we're not living through World War Three, hopefully right now, but um, but you do have like kind of some something similar. There is like a real schism in the chess world that I don't think is going to heal for a while. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's I, I guess the, I guess one difference would be that Karyakin has been punished, although I, I, Alakine was punished in his time. It's just like in retrospect, you know, we still have like all these openings named after him and all that. But at the time he was, um, 
he was like banned from a tournament. Like the U.S., he was going to play in a tournament and the U.S. Chess Federation wrote a letter and garnered support to get him out. Um, and of course, this must have been in 1946, if I'm remembering correctly, because I think he died in 47. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, the uh, he was canceled in his time. So it's it would be incorrect to say Alakine wasn't canceled. But then when he died, like people forgot about it, basically, it seems. Or, you know, just think they figured like, oh, if somebody's dead, then, you know, what good does it do to cancel them? I still think it's important because, you know, you're sending a message to the hu- human humanity and chess players that like it matters what you do. Uh, and as for Karyakin, so he's been banned for six months from FIDE events, right? Mm-hmm. And he's talking about starting a new federation. Uh, I mean, if I, I bet if I joined that federation, I'd be the second highest rated player. So, hey, the, the joke is that no one's joining that federation. Yeah, well, except other <laughs> food and lackeys, right? Yeah. But it, it's, 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 a, it's just a disaster. I mean... I, I, yeah, I don't even know. Well, the, but the chess world came down really hard against him. You know, I mean, it, it, it seems that uh, most people had no sympathy for him and really believed that, you know, he should be, um, his, his views must be denounced. Uh, so that, I think that that's good. Right. I mean, it seemed like there was a lot, there's been like a wonderful response from the chess world to support Ukrainian rights and to help people there. Right. So I, I think that's been good to see how much money has been raised. But, you know, it's hard to talk about good things when, you know, so many people are dying and, yeah. you know, history is being erased, architecture being erased. Yeah. It's also, I, I kind of question how um, sincere, I mean, okay, he is banned for six months, but let's say Dvorkovic, who is, I guess, was Putin's right-hand man. I mean, he's still in charge of FIDE. Fide just wished him a happy birthday on uh, on on Twitter a few days ago. I mean, he he also is somebody who who I mean, if you're being honest, he, I mean, I understand he called it a war and he's 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 you know he's taken the quote unquote proper stance for now. But I mean, it's still a kind of a difficult situation. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be worked out with Fide, isn't there? Yeah, to 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 see if there if there could be a Fide that is totally divorced from all that. Yeah, that would that would that would be a very uh, interesting new chess world, and I would love to see it. Yeah. Now, speaking of you know the the chess world and like international, one one thing that uh, I was not paying attention to until I read your book, um, you talk about like the percentage of women playing um, in in let's say the the Western world versus the world in general. Like you cite like we you mentioned Georgia. Georgia has a lot of female chess players. Um, meanwhile, a place like Denmark, where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Love Denmark, great country, very progressive country. Mm-hmm. I think only about two percent of the entire playing base is female, which exactly. is I think actually mm-hmm. like the lowest in Europe. I think is Denmark. Yeah, um, there's like some some countries that would really surprise you how low they are: Norway, Denmark, Sweden. I think all of these are quite low. Do you have any like theories as to why that is? Well, there's a lot of theories. You know, I think that one theory is that. Uh, in countries with uh, progressive policies, women are free to choose whatever they want to do. And there's not this sense that like, you know, you, um, you need to, uh, to try to emulate men in their favorite activities. So that's one theory that women actually don't really like chess that much. So that if you give them all their rights, they just won't choose it. Okay. I don't, I don't agree with that theory, but that is definitely a theory. All right. Um, a lot of conservatives, I think I've heard, 
I think I, I think Jordan Peterson talks about that a lot. I, I think so. I mean, I, I have to say I'm, Wouldn't surprise I haven't been me. listening to him lately, but yeah. Uh, okay. So that, that is one idea. Um, another thought that I had was, you know, U.S. Chess Federation used to have about like eight, 9% female participation. And it went up a lot in like the early, you know, the mid 2000s up till now. At some point it reached like a peak of 15%, which might not sound like a lot, but actually that's a lot. Because if you're also looking at the fact that the overall membership was growing, um, you know, 15% is like double, right? Or even more than double the actual number of women that were playing like 15 minute years prior. And one of the biggest changes in that time frame was that there was a lot more women's and girls events. So separate women's and girls events, right? Like the girls championship in Chicago that Casper Chess Foundation runs, the Susan Polgar tournament, the Ruth Herring tournament of champions for girls, um, other events like regional ones in New York state and California, there are a lot more than there used to be. And what, when you have those tournaments, more girls play, it's it's not that shocking. If the tournaments are popular, there'll be more girls and women in them. And I think that maybe some of those Scandinavian countries, because of the progressive mentality, maybe they think that those events are like, not cool. That that would be one of my theories. Cause I, I think most of them don't have a lot of separate women's and girls events. Yeah, I just thought it was, you know, after I read the book, I I played, uh, I'm playing like in a, like a weekly, so we have like a league team. And one of the games, we went to like one of the oldest clubs in Copenhagen. And it was very nice, very cozy. But then when you, you know, you have to use the bathroom. Well, there's only urinals. I mean, I mean, basically, there's one bathroom and it has urinals. And, and I mean, there's also like a toilet. But this is something I obviously didn't think about when I read the book. And you, you kind of talk about like, you know, well, girls need to use the bathroom and they should have like supplies for, let's say, you know, menstruation and stuff. The stuff that at first I was like, why is this in a chess book? But I actually thought about it. I said, well, if you're a, if you're a girl, first of all, you're like one of the only girls in the club and you have to you share the bathroom with with men because that's the only bathroom that they have in the chess club, which is one of the oldest like chess clubs in the city. And I was like, damn, like that can't be welcoming at all, actually. You know, and that's like a, a simple thing that could be fixed. Yeah. And I think it's really important, like. Um, to ask people, women from those countries, like I, I would be curious to hear more about what Anna Kramling and Pia Kramling would say. Um, Anna Kramling is such a huge promoter of chess right now. Like maybe she'll make some headway. I saw her tweeting about how we need more girls in the game. I really liked one tweet that she wrote about how every girl who plays chess is doing something or doing a part to make the game less homogenous. I thought that was really well said because yes, girls should be proud to be out there and changing the stereotype. Uh, so, because the reason is because, you know, I think it's like dangerous to just give this like monolithic progressive label to Scandinavian countries when it comes to gender issues, like definitely more progressive on some things. But, you know, for instance, I read a New York Times article the other day about the status of Me Too in Sweden. And I was really shocked because apparently um, it's, it's way different than I expected. I encourage you to like go look up that article because I will, would not be able to do a great job um, really summarizing it. But basically the way that the justice system works there, it, it was like much, much more difficult to punish people um, who were you know, serial sexual abusers or harassers. So yeah, I, I, I think that some more research should be done into that because it could be something completely different that we just don't see if we're not part of that culture. Yeah, I mean, living living in Denmark already for seven months, I 
you know, on my little cultural exchange program that I, I do think that um, I, you know, I can't speak for Scandinavians in general, but there is, I guess, sort of this um, blanket assumption culturally that, well, oh, well, we already have equality. So, you know, and maybe that could explain, you know, that there there isn't this assumed uh, necessarily like a power imbalance or, you know, hierarchical imbalance that maybe is assumed in, in like America where there's a very obvious like pay gap, for example. Um, not saying that a pay gap doesn't exist in Scandinavia either, but it's, but th those kinds of things I imagine are, you know, when your baseline assumption is, oh, well, there, there is equal opportunity already. So what's the problem? And you look at maybe a chess, I think that maybe explains why, again, I don't want to, the, the Danish uh, chess federation has been wonderful and welcoming to me personally, but I, I do wonder like, well, what are they doing now to get more like women in, into the game? Cause it is very low here. Another problem is when you have a country that has a very low rate of female participation, you get a critical mass problem that's like very hard to overcome. It's just like this self-perpetuating prophecy, um, which I am very grateful that it seems like chess in America, we're at the you know, point, especially for children, that we don't have that, that there's enough girls in the game that they can make friends with each other, particularly because of like girls club initiatives and online girls groups, you know, for my own US chess women, but there's also student led groups. Like there's a group of girls in Chicago who have like chess queens united. Um, there's a couple other, there's her move next in New York city. So there's all these like different, um, you know, girls and chess movements and um, US chess women has these girls clubs at national events. So we've got a critical mass of girls where they can make friends and enjoy themselves. But if you don't have any, then you need to start somewhere. And usually that requires like some kind of celebrity to rile up or maybe a superstar coach who can just kind of like get a bunch there to like for people to admire and want to be like and like get it going. I thought it was really funny when you mentioned, well, not funny, but when you, when you mentioned Susan Polgar's club in Forest Hills, um, how she just kind of opened this just because she just loved America so much. I was like, yeah, I want chess to grow here. Well, fun fact, my cousin, the same, the, so the, the, actually the same from the same family as the ones I went to Ukraine with, well, not to Ukraine, to Portugal with. Um, so their eldest daughter was in that chess club. Small world. So like my cousin was like being coached by Susan Polgar, like back in the day many years ago because she she quit chess eventually but but i was like that's something i only found out a very short while ago like a year ago like like uh, and i was like wow that's that's uh that's pretty crazy small worlds and i read about this club and i'm like oh that's like uh because i'm from new york so small world i don't know yeah it is it is a really small world especially when you're talking chess that's for sure had had quite oh. the impact though that club because i mean you know, that was the smallest that and Kasparov Chess Foundation and you do cover that kind of that evolution in the last like 20 years or so of, of kind of you know this uh, huge support that's that's bloomed for for female chess in America. Yeah, it's great. I mean, the one concern I have as we move forward and the chess boom is igniting so much more um, investment in the game is that now that chess has become so much more techie and uh, so much more online that that could um, reduce some of our progress. I mean, I love what's happening. I just think that we might need to make even more efforts to make sure there's enough girls and women because it's a tough combination when you're talking about chess, which is already really male dominated and you're combining it with tech, which is also male dominated. And um, while many of the streamers are female and that's awesome, a lot of the audiences are heavily male, right? Like, I think I'm hearing stats from the YouTubers that it's often like 95, it was like 98%. And then now after the Queen's Gambit, it was 95. So it made a big difference, but it's still a tiny, tiny portion of the audience being female. 
Do you want to guess what my uh, what my my gender breakdown is for my podcast? Yeah, sure. Well, I think because you're a well a, f- a feminist, you're well known for your feminist viewpoints, and you have a lot of female listeners. I'm gonna say it's definitely not as bad as like the YouTube channels because I think there is like a I think there's something about YouTube also that skews male in general. Um, so I'm gonna say it's more like eighty five fifteen. It's ninety eight to two. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I I, I don't know oh why. My God. That's from that Spotify wrong. anyway. That's from Spotify. Brutal, brutal. Although, yeah, although, because um, I don't think they have these statistics on Apple Podcasts. And actually, I found out um, that because I don't really check the Apple Podcasts as much because I thought, oh, well, everyone's using Spotify. Well, it turns out I get three times as many listens on, on Apple Podcasts. And I've been sharing Spotify links this whole time. So I don't know how to market anything. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, Apple's more popular than Spotify. They yeah. Are. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that. So, yeah, so basically it's only Spotify. And maybe Spotify is a little more bro culture. I mean, with Joe Rogan and everything. Sure. So I, I've never, you know, I have two podcasts, The Poker Grid and Ladies Night, and I've never checked. My husband is kind of is kind of more invested in like the stats and all that, the technical stuff. So I don't think I've looked at that recently, but um, I'll let you know what what my breakdowns are yeah. and how they compare from one to the other. It is it is hard though. Like on let's say on chess Twitter, the the so called chess Twitter. I mean, how do you? exactly market yourself you know in a certain way they like you know oh you want to get more female voices when it is also a very male dominated space precisely because of this intersection you've talked about like this tech culture and you see a lot of the new faces actually i think the chess pit you know as much as i you know despise them no I'm, of course i'm kidding but um i think they they brought this they had a very good point about like kind of this intersection of like you know these kind of new age techie bros this kind of like like modern chauvinism of sorts trying to like impress people with how good they are at chess and you have a lot of people like that coming to the game now yeah that is that's interesting although i feel like chess twitter is very progressive in fact it's like problematic because i've you know during the pandemic and you know been on twitter a lot and you're like oh wow so many people on chess twitter believe in like equality and they're like you know fighting for trans rights and like black lives matter and like you're like, okay, that that's Twitter. You have, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean this trend is actually kind of, um, you know, Real in life. the chess world itself. Yeah. And, you know, you saw that with uh, what happened at the US Amateur Team East when this like ridiculous team name on the best team name. And that, that hurt my heart because I grew up playing that tournament. And I, I had a great team name. Like we weren't in contention for first, but my brother, my dad and I all played in the same team and we were called 75% Pure Shahadi. And oh, that's awesome. And one of the t- times we played, um, Alyssa Malahina, who's really awesome, and you should get her on your pod at some point too. She's this like, you know, very uh, superstar lawyer, chess master, author. She's a really cool person. Um, she, she was like eight when she played with us. So she was like only 1600 or 1800. So we all got to play together. So I have like such beautiful memories of this event. So it did hurt. It hurt my heart to hear about that, that team name one um, for listeners. It was um, she said she was 1800. So it was like a reference to statutory rape or to rape and um, predatory behavior, which happens in chess. So it makes it even worse that somebody would make a joke about it. Right. So just the fact that like that team name won and there's like thousands of people there cheering for, well, I'm, I don't know if thousands were cheering for that, but certainly hundreds were cheering for that sounded like, uh, was a wake up call that you can't look at what your friends and chat groups and Twitter is saying and judge like what's going on in the chess world. So it, it was important. You know, I need to be reminded of that. It sucks to be reminded of it in a way because it's like, yeah, it's disappointing, but you need to, you need to know. 
Yeah, I also think if you watch, if anybody who watches Twitch anytime, unfortunately, any like anytime you see like the like a Botez, one of the Botez's comment, do commentary or Anna Rudolph, there's always sexism, and it's gotten much better, but it's it's like still there in a way that I think is very kind of, and I mean, you know, if you look at Twitch, it's 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 hard to moderate that kind of stuff, but it is it is like this, you know, when you when you, it's one thing to be like online on Twitter, and it's another thing to kind of seal away, you know, that these like quote unquote real life. Um, and yeah, there's a there's a bridge. I mean, that's how we got not to be political here, but that's kind of how we got Trump as president, right? Like, um, nobody was really listening to the real life, and everything looked good on Twitter to the the press and whatnot. And reality had a different thing in store for us. And it's so important to have those communities so that you can feel at home, but then also to understand that like what you're fighting against is still out there. I think it's good to have both. Um, and yeah, that's why you kind of need that need those reminders that there's still so much work to do to be done so much work to be done yeah now something i was wondering um after reading the book do you still consider yourself an active chess player like how many tournaments do you play these days no i just play online um although for my next book i have this project actually i want to i've always been really bad at bullet chess especially online and so i want to try to get pretty good at bullet like i mean i don't i want to get better at bullet and it's a pretty big challenge for me because my, I don't feel like my brain is well calibrated to bullet. Uh, I just, I don't like thinking that quickly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, who should, who should my coach be? I need to hire a coach for this. I, I know Hikaru wrote a book on, on getting good at bullets. I, people. Yeah, I, he did write a book, but it was yeah. so long ago. Chess was so different back then. Yeah. They probably didn't have like any of the mice that he uses now. And he wasn't. I also know it wasn't well received. People said it was like, you know, you, oh, you can't teach this. It's cheap. Like, you know, it's like, it's cheap tricks. Like, you know, he's teaching people the psychology of flagging and stuff like that. I've seen some excerpts from it. That's why. But um, I think I bought it. I believe I bought it. I just, I don't, I don't, it's, it was a long time ago that he wrote that. I think it was like 12 years ago or something, but I do believe, I think one thing, I can't remember if it was from one of his early streams or that book, but I remember him saying something about the importance of momentum, which I actually also gather from heads up chat, heads up, heads up poker, um, from heads up poker, since I also play poker, that the effect of momentum is so important. So you just like, can't quit when you're winning. It's really important not to like, even if you, you know, have to like, take care of your child, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> or turn off the stove. <laughs> just, if you want a game, you got to keep going. Yeah. Who cares? The baby's crying. Yeah, um, yeah. I, re- I remember that. I think, and I think that's really good advice. Of course, if you don't have some, a, a child that you need to pick up from school, but uh, in general, that's really good advice to like just to quit if you're um, losing and to keep playing if you're winning. But I'm going to need to go a little bit deeper than that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, um, this was, I guess that's how I wanted to end the podcast. So maybe I was going to save this for the very end, but I, you know, I've been seeing all these, I've been interviewing also this year, all these former, you know, ex chess players became poker players, poker players became chess players. I had Nate Solon on my podcast a while ago. It was one of my favorite episodes. I had, of course, legend Ben Johnson came on my, on my show, you know, some, some poker guys. And now my itch for poker has started to get a little scratched, which I'm a little nervous about because, you know, I'm already addicted to one stupid game and, you know, I'm not trying to get addicted to the second one. But how would someone, in your opinion, like how should they start with po- getting into poker? I think they need to play. And if you have regulated poker that you can play, that's really important because you need to, it's just like chess, you need to combine playing with studying. So the best way to study is 
with um right now they have things that are kind of like chess like and like they have um trainer so they'll like spit hands out at you and you have to decide how to play the only difference with chess is that those things are very advanced they're kind of based on really advanced play so in poker you need to be a little bit careful with that because you might just kind of like learn about how like the top players in the world play high rollers not what's actually going to happen at your local casino so i think with poker you have to be like very diligent much like chess about what you study and you have to kind of keep trying a bunch of different things and seeing what's out there. And you have to play because you need to get the feedback. You need to get the feedback about whether you're doing the right thing. And you need to kind of talk to yourself a lot and make sure that like you're kind of on track. It's, it's a lot of fun though. I mean, poker is also a great game. And it's funny because when you asked me at the beginning of the podcast, why 64 podcast is my favorite chess podcast, I couldn't help but think about the fact that my poker podcast, The Grid, is based on the 169 hands that you can get in No Limit Hold'em. And so when I heard that question, the first thing I thought of was like a chessboard and like the 64 squares lighting up and all of the different like memories and stories that we have on each square. And to me, like whether it's chess or poker, these classic games, that is what moves me, that it's a combination of the story and the culture, you know, from the horrific, like the the war in Ukraine and how that affects chess players to the beautiful, like the many chess players that actually get married because they met at a tournament and, you know, end up having children. You yeah. You so talk many... about a few of those in the book. I love that too. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many beautiful stories of that in chess queens with the hyper analytical and mathematical. Right. And it's that kind of like merging of the two that I feel like is the reason that chess and poker have meant so much to me and given so much to me and your your uh your your title 64 podcast is just like very similar to my my grid in its concept but that means with this with the grid i yeah i do vaguely remember you mentioning this last year but does that mean that after episode 169 it's over you know now that i'm like uh 70 episodes in we're kind of toying with the the uh the podcast a little bit more concept um so it's it's now sponsored by poker stars and i think that I still have the scavenger hunt on, but the difference is if I have somebody I want to talk to and they don't have a hand for me, I'm still going to have them on my on a pod. So we call those like bonus episodes. So I, it's, it's going to be even more than 169 episodes in the end. Right. Because I mean, I, I, as of now, I have no plans to stop at episode 64. I think this is oh, episode yeah. 40, actually. So that would be like a two year run and I don't have any plans to stop. Although who knows, you know. Although when you get to 64, you should do something cool. Like have, so what I have on my website on the poker grid, you can see it. I have this like interactive grid where you can like click on an episode. It would be kind of cool. Like once you get to 64, you could like have a chessboard and like put a little photo on each one and people could click on them. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. I don't actually have a website for the podcast either. Oh, well, you could just do like, you could just, I wonder, you, you'd probably need a website for that and you need yeah. like a plugin, but maybe that could be the website. Like that could be, you know, it could just be like one page where you have that. And if you do that, I'm trying to figure out what square I want. Should I just be in like the center on E4? E4? Because then most well, people will see me. Well, if we think yeah. about it, right, this is about episode 39, 40, if it's eight by eight. So right now. Oh, oh, you want to do it in order. You could do it in order. Yeah. Or you well, could do it, was... it like. With the people in the center are the ones that you like most. Well, yeah. Well, then I would definitely have, yeah. Then you'd be, you know, E4 probably. So, uh, yeah, E4, D4, E5, the one of those four. 
Well, yeah, I, poker. The one thing that kind of interests me about poker is the, is bluffing changes everything, right? Because like, if you can't really bluff in, in chess in the same way, if you have a bad position, you have a bad position. But you can you can win you can win uh, if you if you know how to like bluff proper. From my understanding, I've played poker a couple of times. I, I like I have played with my friends and stuff, so I I do like know the rules. But I think I've, first of all, I've only played like Texas Hold'em, and um, so I don't know any of this other high flutin. Uh, you what, you mentioned the like heads up poker. I don't know what that, what that well, is. Well, heads up poker is just a different way of playing Nolem and Hold'em. It just means that there's only two players to a hand, so it's much more chess like. In fact, I think a lot of chess players should consider starting with heads up. Because it's very similar. It's like one v one. Yeah, exactly. So you get that like intense uh, relationship, and you get to play a lot more hands. It's not like uh, normal p- people. Normal people, not chess players, start start out playing, and they're playing in like a table with nine people. Uh, that 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 is in a way it's easier because like the way that you play it is kind of like simpler, but it also can be very boring for chess players. I remember when I wrote an article for new in chess many years ago, just when poker was starting to get popular. And I think I speculated that like Gary Kasparov would be a terrible poker player because he gets so bored, like not getting to exert his will on the situation and having to just fold constantly. Like it just did not seem like something he would ever want to do. But now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, but maybe he would like heads up poker. He likes Hearthstone. Apparently that's a card game too. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. I heard that he plays with his kids, right? Yeah, something like that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think, you know, because I played World of Warcraft for many years, and I don't think I've ever uh, had more disillusionment than when I heard him say that, like, he, he prefers Alliance over Horde. I was like, this really, like, you are, you're, you've dabbled in World of Warcraft, like, seriously. Um, but hey, that's what happens when you retire from chess, right, I guess. Um, you mentioned the poker boom, and I was, one of the last things I want to ask you is, do you see any similarities between the chess boom and the poker boom? Oh, yeah, definitely. I see tons of similarities. Um, The chess boom and and the poker boom um, both saw the rise of sponsorship, the rise of celebrity players. So, you know, in poker, you had Dan Nunegranu and some players that haven't really stuck around, but some who have like Phil Ivey and Dan Nunegranu. Um, And then in in chess, I'm trying to think of ones that your listeners might have heard of because, you know, they're chess players more than poker players. And in chess, of course, you have you know, Hikaru Nakamura, Magnus Carlsen, and then other streamers like the Botez sisters, Anna Rudolph, like you have all these like mega stars. Uh, and I think that that's very similar. Uh, one thing that I think could be a cautionary tale um, for, for poker is that one of the things that really disrupted the growth of poker was regulations because it involves betting with money. I don't think it's gambling because it's skill oriented, but of course, played in a certain way, it's gambling. So if we just say, like, I have a card and you have a card and whoever has a higher card wins $100, like, well, that's gambling, right? <laughs> if, right. You, if, I, if I have to look into your soul and figure out whether you have it and it's in real life, maybe you can start to say it's poker. But it's like a fine line. In my opinion, you want like, like some strategic elements that are go beyond that, like bet sizing and betting. But uh, because of that, because of those elements, uh, it's intensively regulated all over the world. So it's hard for people to play together in the same way that you can all play together in chess. You can't play online in America, right? Well, you can in some states. So they're doing a good job of starting to regulate it, which is one of the reasons poker is having like a mini boom. I wouldn't say it's like the chess boom, which is massive, but poker's definitely got a little bit of a mini boom. I think when poker 
poker just people like it because it's glamorous and because there are no kids, which is why one of the best ideas I've seen recently, by the way, is the Alto tournament. Yeah, that, it's funny. Uh, it is going to be run in the uh, Charlotte Chess Center. I, I think I got that right, Charlotte Chess yeah. Center. And uh, yeah, it's at least 21. So you have to be 21 years old to play in it. And there's going to be like beer after the games, apparently. I have Not beer retired. during the games here. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I have beer during my games in Denmark. So, hey, what, what, can, what can you do? Don't recommend while playing. But for some people, I know you write in your book that alcohol is the enemy of chess. Um, Denmark respectfully disagrees with you. Um, so, yeah. Well, you can have a beer after the game. In, in fact, in most cases, if you're somebody who likes to drink, you should probably have a beer or wine after the game to unwind. Um, but I just love that idea. I think it's absolutely brilliant the alto tournament. I mean, listen, I love children in chess. I think it's so good for education, but I do think it's important for there to be a space for grownups to socialize while they try to destroy each other in chess. And when you're doing that in 70% of the tournament is kids, it's just like, it's just less likely that you'll be able to meet somebody that you can have a beer with later. Right. So. That was how it was my first tournament. I remember it was like, it was uh, it was a Saturday tournament it's in New York, Marshall Chess Club. So it's like 80% children. I was like 20 at the time. Like, I have no, I don't know anyone there. I have no one to like socialize with. No one, it was before the chess boom. So nobody cared that I was at this chess tournament. You know, nobody was cheering for me or whatever. This was just like a weird hobby that I had at the time. And I wasn't very good at chess either. So it was just a very strange experience. So I, I now that, that I know, I do like hope that there are more events like that. I don't know if this is the start of something or an experiment or a future trend. And I also think a lot of adults are just scared to lose ELO to like, kids who are like prodigies yeah yeah but i don't blame them they work so hard you know and you know they i think it's a combination sometimes i think the fear is unwarranted i i'm sure that, like you know you don't want to get it get inside your head your own head uh i think like you there's like a there's like a bias where people see like one super talented kid and just get paranoid that every kid is like that. But mm -hmm. no, kids are all different. Some of them are not studying jazz that much. Right. But regardless of the reason, the point is like people should enjoy playing chess. People should have lots of options. And I think it's a brilliant option. Hopefully it will take off and there will be alto tournaments all over the country so that grownups have like different options. Yeah, I think growing up, like chess for adults to socialize is, would be great. I think it would do a lot. I mean, in general, being I've talked about this again also a lot of my podcasts in the last few episodes, but I do think that and I don't know. Yeah, I know you've played tournaments all over the world. To me, it seems like the European chess atmosphere, like on the club level anyway, because Lord knows I'm not a chess champion like like some other people on the podcast, such as yourself. Um, but I do feel like the chess culture here, at least at the club level, is a lot more vibrant and um, social than I've experienced in America. Even like, you know, being a member or I guess former member of the Marshall Chess Club since I've been here, I do feel like um, it doesn't feel as friendly or that they're as much socializing as like in all the clubs I've been to in Denmark. And I've been to quite a few at this point. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, there's that kind of workaholic mentality in America, too. So. A lot of times people are just so busy and the games they play are so long. Yeah. Well, um, last thing I want to ask you, uh, just, 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 uh, I guess to finish off with this book, um, what was, uh, what was, I guess the, your favorite part about writing the book and what's, I guess, a nut to follow that up. What's something that you hope that people will learn from this book? I hope that people will learn that there are all sorts of different, amazing women in chess that they didn't know about. And that will open to their, their eyes 
to the fact that there are always multiple histories around them and that you don't have to be a journalist or an author to seek them out and open your eyes and hear from people. Um, and I also, what was the other part of your question? No, what, what was what was like the thing you enjoyed most about working on this book? You know, I really enjoyed going to Texas to meet Angela Alston, this incredible transgender player. That was a really beautiful experience. And looking back on it, I think about Austin. It was like a bit of a precipice of the the boom where Austin, like 15 years later, would become like so high tech, like Elon Musk lives there and it's so expensive. And this was like before that, but there were still hints of it. Like people were always talking about how cool Austin was. So I think that was really enjoyable to me. And then a process oriented answer would be that I just love editing because once you have something that's like pretty like decent, like not even good, but like, just like, okay. And you can just like continually layer and layer and layer and layer until like finally it gets good. And then you can like continue to try to chisel it away until hopefully it gets really good. That is just like such an amazing experience. I love it so much. And maybe in some ways it reminds me of trying to build an opening repertoire. So first you try to make sure that you're not getting crushed in any opening, right? <laughs> like that you know what to do if they play C6, you know? Well, like, like we're going to get as if we're going to get crushed by the Carol Cod. Hey, <laughs> but as hey. If. that hurt my <laughs> feelings. Then, and then you go and then you go deeper and deeper and you try to chisel in and make it like finer. And I find that to be like such an amazing experience. Um, I've never built a house, but I feel like there's a com there's a sense of comfort to know that you're going to have a book. There's a foundation. You have an opening repertoire and then you just have to clean up each room. It feels yeah, good. I, th I think you cleaned the rooms very nicely. It's one of the most enjoyable books I've read in a long time. Um, yeah, I guess now I have one more question that I just thought of. Um, what What's next for, uh, for you know, this kind of literature? Like, what's the next kind of book like chess? Is there another book like Chess Queens that needs to be written? Yeah, well, I am writing another book. Um, working title, Thinking Sideways, um, about chess and using it to improve your life and the lives of people around you and kind of also reassessing what we think of as a successful player. So it's really a jumping off point from chess queens, but it's not going to be only about women players, right? There, I mean, you, you can be sure that if I'm writing the book, there will be a few, <laughs> there'll be a lot of women mentioned that it's not going to be 5%. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it will, it will be like expansive. And it'll also talk about like how to improve your own memory and, um, decision-making skills via the game. You know, you could hypothetically interview um, a podcast host from Brooklyn, New York, who only picked up chess when he was about 19 years old and used it um, to help himself with a lot of his own life skills. Hypothetically, I mean, you know, a working title and all, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yes, love it. Well, I'll have to do that as well. Yeah. So that'll I'm give sure. us another chance to talk. 100%. I mean, you know, there are, there are a lot of, people out there in this world who have uh you know been playing chess and uh especially through this boom um but it is what it is you know and i like i said before i mean i think uh you the way you talk about chess is something not as like uh you know be all end all elo thing it's like how you make it like work for your life um and how do you make it improve your life i think that's uh it's a it's a it's a beautiful approach towards you know what is really just a beautiful game Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on and giving such a thoughtful reading of Chess Queens. 
it's really um, uh, beautiful to get interviewed by people who have read it carefully. Uh, it's it's just it's it's very kind of you because I know how busy you are. Um, so yeah, thank you and thanks to everybody who's listening. Hundred percent. Special yeah. shout out to that two percent, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this episode will be three or four. Well, yeah, that it, it does show the it does show the episode breakdown. We'll see. And also shout out to my to my one percent non-binary uh, listeners as well. We love you here. Um, yeah, I guess uh, you know before obviously before you go, like where can we get Chess Queens? Because I know I think it's not out in paperback well, actually, in the United you can States get it. yet. Well, right now you can get it on um, ebook and audiobook everywhere, um, and you can get it on hardcover in Europe, and uh, also now you can get it in a hardcover in the United States. Um, but it's only at one venue right now until June. It's at the uh, U.S. Chess Sales, and the reason for that is that they're hosting a couple of live events for me, so they've gotten in a ton of copies for those live events. So that's a, a pro tip. If you want a hard copy in the United States right now, you can go over to U.S. Chess Sales, Chess Queens, and order yourself one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I definitely. I mean, I have like a, I have an advanced copy. I guess I'd like to have a hard copy um, of the book, also just to to share with other people because I do think it is a book that is very accessible to anybody. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the book, and I'm gl- I'm glad you came to talk about it. Tell me a little bit about poker, and um, I know we'll do it again. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Good times as always. Thank you so much, David. Yes, thanks so much for coming. I just want to thank, as always, uh, Aim Chess for sponsoring the podcast. You can use code DAVID30 to get 30% off your first month with Aim Chess. Also, special shout out to Chessable uh, for becoming a sponsor of the podcast. If you want to learn more about Chessable, chessable.com slash 64pod. I want to thank my Patreon supporters as always. Thanks so much for supporting the show financially. If you want to support the show financially for as little as a dollar a month, patreon.com slash 64podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to the episode. And I'll see you guys next week.